0: Well last week we started a new series called Sola and Sola is the Latin word for only. It's a word used by historians and theologians reflecting back on the Reformation to summarize the five key principles, theological principles that were articulated by the reformers. The Reformation was a movement started when Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 propositions on the door of the Wittenberg church, uh, the community that he was in and where he was teaching. And last week, we talked about the first of the solas, sola scriptura. And this week, we're moving on to the second, solas Christus, or Christ alone. Now, the reformers didn't just pluck this idea out of thin air. Instead, they found it scattered throughout the stories and the letters of the New Testament. And one example is a story we talked about a few weeks ago in our series on the Acts of the Apostles. It was a story about a time when Peter was hauled in front of the religious authorities. The day before, what he had done is he had healed a man who'd been born lame, uh, then preached about Jesus to a large crowd outside the temple. And the religious authorities, these guys, and they were all guys, weren't happy with what Peter had done. Their goal was to shut him up, or worse. But they knew that brute force wasn't the best first step, so they tried a line of questioning that was designed to trip him up. And their question was, by what power or name did you do this miracle? And Peter looked them in the eye, and he said, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's the sola Christus, salvation by Christ alone. And I know that that idea makes some, uh, well, some are offended today. The claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation sounds arrogant and narrow-minded. And some Christians are arrogant and narrow-minded and self-righteous to boot. But Christians haven't been saying that salvation is found in Christ alone for 2,000 years in order to make an arrogant, narrow-minded claim. We say this because that is who Jesus is. Jesus is unique. He's the only one. So today I want us to look at a few only Jesus statements that remind us of why Jesus is unlike any other religious or historical figure in history. And the first thing is that only Jesus is fully God and fully man. And some of you are saying, "Oh, well, that doesn't make sense. How can that be? He's either one or the other, God or man, not both. But this God-man deal is a big thing. It's something the writers of the New Testament were unyielding on. In John's biography of Jesus, he uses this statement at the very beginning when he describes it this way. He says, the word became flesh and his dwelling was among us. The word is Jesus. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. In a few weeks, whether you're ready for it or not, we'll be smack dab in the middle of the Christmas season. And in a nutshell, what John is describing here is the Christmas story. That Jesus was once up there and now he came down here. He became a human being, one of us. He made his dwelling among us. It's what theologians call the incarnation, the moment in history when Son of God humbled himself and became one of us, giving up the privileges of heaven to travel all the way to Bethlehem. Now, you might ask, why is that significant? Well, first, because it shows that we have a God who can relate to us, to our experience. He's not detached, he's not aloof totally identifies with what we have experienced here on earth. He entered our world, accepted our limitations, made himself vulnerable, exposed himself to temptation, and experienced the bitterness of our sorrows. In the end, he was tried, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was condemned, he was flogged and crucified, the victim of gross injustice. And in this, he bore our sin, dying our death on the cross. At a minimum, what this tells us is that Jesus sympathizes with us Especially those who suffer, often much more than we have. The starving, the neglected, the abused, the lonely, the mistreated, the homeless, the helpless, all who have lost loved ones, and those who've been forsaken by ones that they loved. That's why the Christmas story contains such profound hope. You see, all other world religions promise to lead us to a God up there. Buddhism has a God who's detached from suffering. Hinduism postulates a detached, impersonal conception of a deity or deities. But the Christian God entered our world and suffers with us and for us. That's why when someone asks me, why doesn't God do something, I often tell people among other things that he has. He's come down, he's entered our world, he experienced our pain. He didn't demand that we go up to him, instead he came down to us. Only the Christian God has a God who came to find us, A God who promises to be with us in the midst of our difficulties. Now, to be honest, in every instance, I don't understand why God doesn't just remedy things, every calamity, immediately. But what I do know is that in Christ, God is beside us. So while we can wonder why he doesn't change our circumstances in the moment, the important truth is that he will not abandon us. Only Christian faith offers a God who joins us in our pain and brings us peace. If all we have is a sentimental, heartwarming story, we do not have a God who promises to be with us. Instead, we have a God who tells us we're on our own, which is functionally the same as no God at all. But the fact that Jesus became one of us tells us that he cares deeply about each of us. Now, occasionally, it will feel like God is very far away, that he's too busy to care about our day-to-day needs. But this God-man detail uh, makes us realize that that's a lie. God loved us enough to become a human being like us, a real body with real feelings, real pain, real hardship, and real loss. Jesus isn't like some long-distance relationship. He became one of us. Only Jesus is like this, fully God, fully man, right here beside us. But Jesus didn't just arrive here on earth. He did something that no one else has done before or since, and that is Jesus, only Jesus, lived a perfect life. In other words, Jesus wasn't just a really good guy or a great moral example. He was something far greater. Only Jesus is the person who lived and never did anything wrong. It's a claim that some have made, even today, but no one else has been able to back it up except Jesus. The writer of Hebrews wrote this. He said, we do not have a high priest, and he's speaking about Jesus here, who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That means Jesus didn't lie, cheat, or steal. He didn't gossip or say snarky things to his friends. He wasn't greedy or proud or deceitful. He didn't take advantage of others or cut corners. Every time he faced a choice, he chose right. And that's not something that any of us can claim. In fact, if we're honest, we're in far worse shape than we think. We need to own up to it. We're not people the people that even we know we ought to be. So no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good things we do, no matter how many self-improvement books we read, in the end we find out we cannot fix our broken and sinful hearts. So back to Jesus for a moment. Why is it so important that Jesus never sinned? Because it means that only Jesus is able to take our sin away. And that's what leads us to our next only Jesus statement. Only Jesus died for our sins. Nearly everyone knows that Jesus died the death of a common criminal on a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago, but not everyone knows why. Some believe Jesus was a victim, that events spun out of control and his death was an unfortunate accident, a perfect storm made up of jealous religious authorities, the passions of an angry mob, and a hapless, naive Jesus. Except that's not what happened. You see, Jesus was not naive. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. We are told by multiple eyewitnesses that Jesus knew this would happen and had known for a long time. In fact, his death was voluntary. It was part of the plan. More bluntly, it was for us that he came in the first place and for this that he came. He did what he did in obedience to his Father's will despite tremendous personal sacrifice, literally. Why? Out of love for each of us. Our sin separates us from God. And we know that from personal experience because if we've ever hurt someone through our own thoughtlessness or cruelty or selfishness, we've experienced the separation that happens between two people. Maybe you've said something behind someone's back and later they find out. Or disappointed someone by failing to fulfill a promise. Think of how hard it is to look that person in the eye. It's like that with God, only worse. Because we have lots of ways to go wrong. Pride and lust and deceit and gossip and apathy and indifference. Racism and lying and slander and laziness, infidelity and unfaithfulness, anger and uh, hypocrisy, cowardice and greed and envy and selfishness. And those things create a barrier between us and God. That's the bad news, that we are more sinful than we ever thought. But the good news is that God loved us more than we ever imagined. And how do we know that? We know it because Jesus was willing to die on the cross for us. St. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2.24, He said, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, quoting Isaiah, you have been healed. Or what John said in John 15, 13, that without his sacrifice, none of us would ever have been saved. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's Jesus speaking. And it's exactly what he would later do. Many years later, St. Paul would observe about this whole dynamic and say, God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I realize the idea of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins to many seems uncomfortable, even offensive. And I understand it because it's an awkward concept. But the Christian tradition teaches us that sin creates a burden or a barrier that must be paid, a debt. Its effects can never be ignored or willed away. That means that Jesus' death on the cross is a vicarious payment for all human sin. Through this, forgiveness is granted to all on the basis of faith. And while we struggle with the sacrifice part of the story, we also are not willing to give up the idea that when someone messes up, a debt must be paid. So when someone defrauds us of money, we want them to pay it back. If someone kills another person, we ask for justice. The truth is that none of us want Hitler or Stalin or Harvey Weinstein to get away with it, to go off free without facing justice. Sin requires that the debt be paid, that someone bear the cost, and Jesus did that for us. Only Jesus, who lived a perfect life, could do what he did. But there's more, much more, because only Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus did more than die, He rose again from the dead, and I'll venture to say that's not something any of you have seen. A friend of mine who's a physician says, in my professional experience, no one gets off this planet alive. The biographers of Jesus tell us that Jesus died late on a Friday afternoon. It was right before the sunset. Sunset began the Sabbath time, so the authorities rushed to get Jesus' body into a temporary grave. All day Saturday, his disciples were in hiding. The way the stories are told, they were despondent. All their hopes had been crushed when Jesus died and the dreams that they had were over. But a few women decided that despite their grief on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, they would do one more loving thing for the person who had changed their lives. So they gathered some spices, some burial cloths, and they went at first light to the place where Jesus had been buried to visit the tomb so they could properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. It was a simple act of piety and love. But it's important to note here what they did not go to do that morning. They didn't go expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. Some argue that after Jesus died, his disciples had a vested interest in keeping things going, so they stole the body and made up the story that Christians have been telling for 2,000 years. But it begs the question, why would they steal the body and make up the story they didn't believe in the first place? If they didn't believe Jesus would rise from the dead, why did they steal the body? Not a single one of Jesus' disciples, including the three women who went to the tomb that morning, believed he would rise from the dead. And yes, Jesus did predict it, but it is absolutely clear in the biographies of Jesus that the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. Despite what some say today, people in ancient times are not more gullible than we are. They weren't stupid. They know what we know, and that is that dead people don't get up and walk out of funeral homes. But when they arrived, these three women got the shock of their lives. The stone had been rolled away, and when they looked into the tomb on the shelf where Jesus' body had been placed, he wasn't there. Instead, there was a man dressed in white. It says they were alarmed. And he said, don't be. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Go, he said, and tell his disciples and Peter. So they rushed home without saying a word to anyone along the way. They were too shocked to even know what to think. So, what was it exactly that the women and the 11 remaining disciples understood once they saw Jesus, who appeared to them over the next few days? Well, they didn't think this proves it. Jesus was a great moral example, a wise teacher, or a compassionate friend, even though he was all of those. Because Jesus could have been all of those and still have been rotting away in that grave. What the resurrection did for the earliest members of the Christian church is convince them of Jesus' power to forgive them of their sins. Only Jesus, they believed, could do that. Now it may surprise you to know that the first Christians did not wear crosses around their necks. In fact, it would be two to three hundred years before Christians would begin to use the cross as a symbol representing their faith. So why didn't they do what we do? Because the cross was a symbol of disgrace, like wearing a replica of an electric chair or a noose around our necks. So the idea of a cross as a piece of jewelry would have been appalling and scandalous and disgusting. So all the warm, fuzzy emotions that the cross evokes for us, we must never forget that it is a symbol of unspeakable horror and shame. So why then do we give little girls cross necklaces for their birthdays? Why is it that the cross has become such a pervasive and popular symbol? Why is it that churches use them so freely, just like the stained glass window behind me? Why, change, why did this change from a once shameful symbol into something that we now see as so sentimental? it's because of what the cross signifies. It reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. It reminds us that the cross is empty, that Jesus rose from the dead, defeating once and for all sin and death, the sin that separates us from God. Now, I know some doubt the resurrection. I wish we had time today to go through some of the reasons why it makes more sense, in my opinion, to trust the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. We're told that over 500 people saw Jesus in the weeks between when he arose from the dead and when he ascended into heaven. If you're convinced, seek out the evidence. See me and others and we can point you in the direction because it's there. But let me also tell you why you should want it to be true. Not just that it is true, but that you want it to be true. Because in the resurrection is the hope of eternal life and for transformation in this life. Let me just read to you from 1st Peter chapter 1. When he writes, "Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you." Only Jesus can do that. And here's something else only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can give you a relationship with God embedded in every other religion or way of life, every other philosophy, is a way for us to find God. But Jesus is not just your way to find God. He is God come to find you. He has come to you today no matter where you are in this place, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you've done. Jesus finds us in the dark and messy places like doubt and depression. He finds us in places filled with sin and shame. Jesus is the one who says to you, I love you, I want you to to be with you so much that I was willing to come and die for you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he carried the cross on his back. It's why he walked up the hill called Calvary. And it's why he gave his life for you and for me. And I know that some don't like this idea of only Jesus. That when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, it makes it sound, it rubs us the wrong way because it sounds narrow and exclusive, but at least there is a way. And a way is open to all. None are excluded. Only Jesus is fully God and fully man. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus died for our sins and only Jesus rose from the dead. So if Jesus is all these things, would we not choose to follow Jesus and to make him our savior? So let me tell you one of two ways that we can live out this only Jesus deal. And the first is to make Jesus our savior, to receive him as our savior. Because our situation is desperate. We've been created with great dignity in the image of God. However, because of our sin and rebellion, we're alienated from him. Nothing we can do to fix that. We need a radical cure. That's why God gave us a loving and gracious remedy. God in his great love reached out to us through Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, he took upon himself our sin. In his resurrection, he makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And our response needs to be one of repentance and faith. Each of us must personally embrace what God has done in Jesus, to repent of our sin, to put our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. But there's one more thing that we can do, and that is to commit to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, because only Jesus is Lord. So the next way to live it out is to make Jesus Lord of our lives. Once we understand who Jesus really is, we will want to do what millions, if not billions, have done before us in history, and that is to give our lives to him, to submit our lives to him, to surrender our will to him. Only Jesus can save, only Jesus can heal us, and only Jesus has the power to do all sorts of things in our lives, restore marriages, to mend what was broken. Jesus can free us from addictions. Only Jesus can be trusted to be the Lord of our lives. Now, whether we realize it or not, we all trust our lives with someone or something. That's why what Bob Dylan once said, you've got to serve somebody is absolutely right. I don't know about you, but I often struggle with whether I can really surrender, give my life, give Jesus complete control of my life. Can I trust him with my dreams? Can I give him control of my money? Trust him to take care of my problems? Or do I want to jump in and fix things myself? John Ortberg compares submission to Jesus, to driving a car, and he says that, you know, lots of people find it handy to have Jesus in the car, maybe even in the passenger seat. Then if they need help, he's there. But they aren't so sure about giving Jesus the keys and letting him drive. If Jesus is driving, we aren't in control. If Jesus is driving, we're not in charge of our money, our time, our relationships, our ego, our past hurts. If Jesus is driving, we no longer have the right to satisfy every desire or every selfish ambition. We no longer get to gossip, deceive, manipulate, or exaggerate. Instead, our lives are his. We have to get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. And I know what that sounds like, at least at first. It sounds like you'll lose yourself, that what makes you, you will be gone, that you'll no longer be truly alive. But actually, the opposite is true. If we believe, truly believe, that Jesus is the wisest, most loving person who's ever lived, if we believe that he gave his life just for us, and if we believe that when he rose from the dead, he's demonstrated power over sin and death and given us eternal life, as well as peace and hope and joy and freedom and healing that we need to flourish and be the people God created us to be. If all of that is true, then the only rational response is for us to surrender our lives to him, to make Jesus Lord of our lives. The paradox is that allowing Jesus to take the wheel makes us more alive than we've ever been before. That's because it's not our life, it's his When Jesus was alive, he once asked his disciples a question. He said, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples offered some answers. Some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked a question. He said, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, should we not trust our lives to him? Let's pray. Sola Christus, only Jesus. Father, Jesus is unique. He's your son. And because of your love and his willingness to submit to your will, he joined us here on earth, living the life that we have tried but cannot live dying the death that we deserve, being raised again from the dead so that we might have a relationship with you. May we first entrust our lives, our eternity to you in faith. And may we surrender our will daily to you, taking up our cross, taking up the things that you ask of us each day. May we find in you the freedom and hope and peace and love that you offer us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.